In 1867, British politics were turned upside down by the Second Reform Act, which gave working men in fast-growing industrial towns the vote for the first time. In England and Wales, the size of the electorate was doubled overnight by new voters, who demanded social reform of housing, sanitation and education. In Birmingham, where the number of voters tripled, one ambitious politician, Joseph Chamberlain, seized this opportunity. Firstly, in Birmingham itself, and then on the national stage, he developed a radical agenda addressing those issues which mattered most to newly enfranchised voters. At the same time, he created a close-knit and highly disciplined electoral machine dedicated to promoting him and his ideas. This machine delivered success after success, and for more than 30 years, the West Midlands became Chamberlain's unassailable fortress, whatever the political weather. Now, for the first time, this unique story is told in The Birmingham Political Machine Winning Elections for Joseph Chamberlain by historian Andrew Reeks, who discusses his new book with History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs. The title of your book refers to Chamberlain's political machine. What was the political machine? Well, the political machine is several things. It's first of all a small professional commissariat. At its heart, a small number of people who operate offices from which emanate instructions, communications, pamphlets, questions and policies. People like Schnadhorst and C.A. Vince and Powell Williams are the masters of these operations. But the machine is more than that. It's a group of people who are involved in a range of activities. They multitask and they are completer finishers and you find them recurring across committees. Many of them were chapel-goers. Many of them will have listened to the sermons of George Dawson or of Robert Dale. Many of them have been successful businessmen or professionals, but now moved on in retirement to express their desire for involvement and desire for power by being involved in running things in Birmingham. They were often inspired by education in the first instance, for example, 10 of the members of the machine, the most important members, were at the very outset in the National Education League. You find them recurring right the way up to 1900 in other manifestations. The machine is both professional, ensuring that policies, canvassing, pamphleteering, electioneering is all done properly, but it's also people on a day-to-day -day basis who are involved in committees ensuring that the liberal or unionist policy of Chamberlain is carried through. This political machine was really a function, I guess, of the Second Reform Bill of 1867. How did that bill and the subsequent act change the electorate? Well, the first thing it did was greatly increase it. It was one of the most important acts across the entire 19th century in terms of bringing about democracy. It doubled the number of electors. It gave the vote to urban householders. And it enfranchised many who could barely read and write. And so now educating these people became a central issue in politics. 
And how specifically did it change the electorate in Birmingham? It gave Birmingham an extra seat. It had had two seats, now it had three seats. And it gave each elector two votes. That put a premium on organising those voters so that the votes were distributed evenly across the three Liberal candidates. Thus, an organisation was needed to do that. And the machine, in a sense, came into being to organise that vote. But the machine also came about because the educational deficit I talked about was thrown into stark relief in Birmingham. It was also important that the organisation respond to what the new urban voter wanted. And as far as those voters are concerned, housing, sanitation and education were very important to them. So the machine set about answering those demands. And this was just about the time that Joseph Chamberlain was becoming a significant figure in Birmingham politics? Yes, he emerges at exactly the same time. The emphasis on education locally had drawn him in, a local businessman, to the campaign to improve education for working people. He starts off in the Birmingham Education Society and then recognises that there's a national demand for working-class education, and thus he and Jesse Collings and George Dixon set about creating the National Education League in 1869, just two years after the Reform Act. Was Chamberlain unique in this recognition of the changed electorate and reacting to it appropriately? By no means. He was one of many. He himself was a dominant figure. He would dominate any organisation with which he was connected. But he had people, allies, who recognised exactly the same things. George Dixon, uh, Jesse Collings were prominent in the education story. But there were others who were prominent too in recognising that new political organisations were needed. So his objective was dominance of Birmingham electorally, politically. I don't think he would have overtly sought dominance. I think the point about Chamberlain was that he was incapable of not dominating. He was charismatic. He was energetic. He was domineering. He was remorseless and he was inexorable so that that energy and that drive naturally took him into a commanding position in whatever organisation he was associated with. He was a very new person in politics, only 18 months or so of involvement in public life, yet he lands up as being the executive chairman of the National Education League, a league which spreads right across the country with over a 100 branches. And there he is, 18 months later, effectively running it. Within a year, he is the spokesman in 10 Downing Street when he and others from the National Education League go to Gladstone to demand changes to the Liberal Education Bill. It's he who steps forward and Gladstone recognises a coming man at that moment. So the dominance is not intentional, it just happens. How did this experience on the national stage 
with education reflect on his approach to a move into Birmingham politics? Well, it's curious. He got involved in Birmingham politics because he thought that any education act would require local councils to administer that act in municipalities. So he got himself elected on the council in 1869, fully expecting that school boards, which were the new organisation which the Liberal government was putting in place to administer education, would be run by local councillors. As it transpired, this didn't happen. The school boards were to be elected from ratepayers, and he discovered that he'd made, in a sense, a false move. But having got involved in the council, he became completely absorbed in the sorts of issues that dominated local life. The issue that started him off was sanitation, because Birmingham was appallingly served for sewage and sanitation. He got involved in that with Thomas Avery and others. And from there, he became interested in the process of how you actually supplied clean water to particularly the poor areas of Birmingham where people could barely afford to pay the water rates to the private company that ran Birmingham Water. So it was a gradual process. Having involved himself in the water, he recognised that actually he needed to find the money to purchase these private water companies, and the only way to do that would be to create a monster profit. That would be through gas ownership. And so steadily and surely he became more involved. And by 1873, his preeminence in the National Education League and on the school board was such that he was the obvious candidate to be put forward as mayor in November 1873. By what process, what organisation did Chamberlain make his mayorality so successful, so effective? The first thing to remember is that his dominance was a personal one. His personality dominated the committees. There were 16 committees by the time he finished as mayor. He would regularly visit each of those. And his opinion, his advocacy made a mark on pretty well all of those committees. So the first thing was his personal presence and character. But then it was the creation of a machine, a machine of like-minded people who would effectively vote with him on whatever subject he put forward. And the heart of the machine was the extended family, the Chamberlains, the Kenricks, the Martineaus, the Nettlefolds, linked by marriage. You find those names recurring across the membership of committees and indeed national organisations like the National Education League and later on the National Liberal Federation. And subsequently, Chamberlain moves on to the national scene. He becomes an MP. Does the machine go with him? Does he use this to control Birmingham and his constituency? Yes, the machine has two aspects to it. The machine is both a local organisation and a national organisation. Both are run from Birmingham. The machine is so effective because, first of all, it chimes with the ideology of a new electorate. The civic gospel was a very appealing thing for the new voters, and so was social reform. 
The second thing to say is that the machine was democratic. It involved all in party decisions, ward committees, voting members to the uh, 400, 800, or indeed the 2,000. These are the dominant groups in Birmingham. And the machine was effective because at all stages, it focused on social reform at its heart, right the way up to 1906. Tariff reform was, for many in Birmingham, about social reform, finding the money for further social reform. After 1886, the machine came to reflect Birmingham's interests and uh, predisposition towards imperialism and towards fair trade, which meant tariffs. So the machine chimed with local opinion. But above all, the most important thing about the machine was that it was the master of electoral techniques. The machine developed things that are still to this day very important in electioneering. But at the time, they were forerunning the innovation of things like canvassing, pamphleteering, ensuring friendly voters were on the register and unfriendly voters were not on the register. The machine used the press remorselessly, and in J.T. Bunce at The Post, it had a friend, and for 20 years, The Post and other newspapers locally reflected the machine's thinking. The machine was at the forefront of using electoral agents, employing full-time agents. Twelve agents were employed as full-time employees by the National Education League, But by the time we get to 1904, the Tariff Reform League is employing scores of agents to do its will. And it also pioneered the employment of women. In all these techniques, the machine was at the forefront and it was the smooth operator of British politics to the point where other people admired it from a distance. Disraeli told the Queen that it was Mr Chamberlain and his organisation that had done for him in the 1880 election. Right the way through to the beginning of the 20th century, opponents recognised the incredible effect that the machine had. Did Chamberlain ever comment on the machine himself? He describes how the machine is in good working order. That's in the early days. Overtly using the word machine, I haven't found too many other instances, but... He regularly boasts about the way that Birmingham knows how to do it. In 1903, when he comes out for tariff reform, he says in a letter soon after that, I absolutely must have my own loyal organisation, as I always do. Thus, he sets up an organisation based in Birmingham. He's not prepared to rely on an organisation based in London. Birmingham is where it is. That's where his warehouses of pamphlets, his offices, his printing presses, his experienced leaders like C.A. Vince are based and he knows he can rely on it. So in a sense, he demonstrates his love of the machine by constantly returning to it and to Birmingham for security. Did other people copy it? And did other cities in Britain also create political machines? Yes, they did. The National Liberal Federation, which was created in 1877, based on Birmingham by Chamberlain, 
was an organisation intended to be national which would link local Liberal parties together. Frank Schnadhorst had gone out from 1873-1874 to some of the northern cities like Rochdale and Leeds and had encouraged the organisation of Liberal parties which would ape the Birmingham Liberal Association. Chamberlain then set out to link these together in a federation and over a hundred of these local organisations were tied together by the Liberal Federation as a grassroots network to put pressure on Gladstone and the Cabinet to make sure that reform issues were adopted by the National Party. The first thing to say is that, yes, there were imitations all over and they were tied to Birmingham and they took their lead from Birmingham and Birmingham cracked the whip and told them what to do, which was not popular. But other political parties also imitated. For example, the Conservative Party created the National Union of Conservative Constituency Associations under Lord Randolph Churchill in the 1880s, which was a direct copy of the National Liberal Federation. Churchill said something to the effect of, Chamberlain shows us how it should be done. So, yes, it was imitated, but it was never as effective as the original prototype. There was clearly a group of interested people with common ideas, common views, who sat at the centre of the political machine around Chamberlain. Who were the key players in this group? Well, many of the key players were family members, extended family members, the Kenricks and so on. And William Kenrick, for example, when one traces his involvement in Birmingham and national affairs, it really is remarkable how many of those enterprises he's involved with. He's a brother-in-law of Chamberlain, He's a Unitarian, same religion, attending the same chapel. He is the branch chairman of the National Education League. He then becomes a councillor, as Chamberlain becomes a councillor. And he sits on crucial committees like the Gas Committee to ensure that gas reform is carried out in Chamberlain's image. He becomes mayor pretty well straight after Chamberlain in 1877, he becomes a founder member of the National Liberal Federation. He becomes a governor of the King Edward's Foundation to ensure that an Anglican monopoly is broken up in favour of a much wider access for Birmingham people. He's on the Free Libraries Committee. He's chairman of the Arts Committee and donates Millet's Blind Girl to the museum. And on top of all that, he's a loyal Liberal Unionist MP following Chamberlain as he breaks with Gladstone. All those demonstrate an utter loyalty and a dedication to the cause and the work that he will be doing on those committees is invaluable. So that's Kenrick. Secondly, one might take Frank Schnadhorst. He is, if you like, a professional operator. He is a master of the machine. His organisation skills are very rapidly recognised in the work that he does for the non-conformist organisation, 
pressing for education reform. He then becomes a secretary of the Birmingham Liberal Association, and very rapidly he's a secretary of the National Liberal Federation. And there he is, if like the evil genius of the machine. His instructions from Birmingham go out to branch chairman to make sure that MPs behave themselves, vote the right way on Gladstone issues, most particularly, for example, Bulgarian atrocities. Schnauthorst is absolutely central to the machine up to 1886. He's even so loyal to Chamberlain in 1884 that he commits perjury in terms of the affidavits that he organises to get Chamberlain off the hook after the Aston Manor riots, when the Liberals broke up a Conservative rally in Aston Manor. So he's prepared to do a great deal, almost lay down his political life, but then he breaks with Chamberlain in 1886. He takes leadership of the National Liberal Federation to London. He allies himself with Gladstone, and he is cast out of the machine, dying, as it happens, very sadly, in an asylum in Sussex. And at the heart of all of this group of what I guess were very ambitious men, ambitious for ideas and presumably for themselves at times, was Chamberlain. How did he manage to provide the glue that held all of these people together? The glue is his personal magnetism, without any question. He was a brilliant advocate of his cause, so he could often out-argue the others when there was an opposition to him. But there was also a feeling that he not only was right, but that his cause was worth following. So he was magnetic enough to attract people to him and keep them loyal. He was also generous to those who supported him. He was quite prepared to use patronage in that regard. For example, Power Williams became a minister in 1895 because of the efforts of Chamberlain. So he bound people to him. When we talk about political machines in the American context, they are seen like Tammany Hall or Chicago in more recent times with Mayor Daley as being places of corruption of bribery. Was there any element of this in the Birmingham political machine under Chamberlain? I found no evidence of bribery at all, of that sort of behaviour. Just occasionally sharp practice was used. For example, in canvassing, Austin Chamberlain describes how in that by-election of 1889, he and Powell Williams went round the houses and they got someone to pretend to be canvassing for their opponent. And that way, the response to that interloper told them that, in fact, the vote was being secured for their own side rather than for that interloper's party. That was a little bit of fraudulent behaviour by Chamberlain. There were times when the machine appears to have used unfair pressure and indeed violence. The most notable instances of this are 1884, when Lord Randolph Churchill and Fred Burnaby came for a rally which was against the 1884 Reform Bill. That rally was to take place at Aston Moor. Liberals scaled the 
walls, broke in, broke into the hall, got onto the platform, broke it up. That violence appeared to have the fingerprints of Joseph Chamberlain and other of his party behind the operation. So much so that Randolph Churchill accused Joseph Chamberlain on the floor of the House of Commons of being complicit in encouraging violence in Birmingham. Then in 1901, Lloyd George came to Birmingham. Lloyd George was very much an anti-Boer War figure. Chamberlain was the author of the Boer War. Lloyd George spoke in the town hall and the violence of some 20,000 people in Victoria Square and in the town hall itself was such that one man was killed, others were very badly injured. Lloyd George himself had to be ushered out in disguise as a policeman from the back of the town hall. And Lloyd George felt that this was very much encouraged by Chamberlain and his cronies. Indeed, posters had been seen that day to the effect that Lloyd George was speaking in the town hall, meet him and greet him, and the threat was implicit in that phrase. Looking back at the book you've created on the political machine that Joseph Chamberlain created in Birmingham, what does it tell us about the man? Well, it tells us that he was political to his fingertips. He loved intrigue. He loved the power play of politics. He understood electoral politics better than any other politician alive in his generation. His meticulous analysis of constituencies, voting patterns, eye for detail, brilliant committee chairmanship, and compelling oratory, charismatic leadership, all were qualities which were employed by and brought out by the political machine. Andrew, thank you for introducing us to Chamberlain and his political machine. A truly unique, as you say, period of British political history, and one that, as you've said, resonates still today. Thank you. Thank you. You can order Andrew Reek's fascinating book, The Birmingham Political Machine, Winning Elections for Joseph Chamberlain, at the History West Midlands website, www.historywm.com, where you can also find films about the life of Joseph Chamberlain and his soon-to-be-restored home at Highbury in Birmingham. <laughs>